You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, family. Good to see all of you. If it's your first time with us, welcome. So glad to have you. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and just appreciate you coming to worship with us today. Just want to make a plug for Love Your Neighbor, now that that song is stuck in my head all day. Uh, but uh, would really encourage you, May 4th, uh, it is our annual service day where we just have a whole bunch of projects, just really simple, concrete, but powerful ways to love the community. Uh, according to the Bible, good works do not save us, but good works show that we are saved, that we have been transformed by Jesus. And so one part of becoming like Jesus is just learning to do good to others without expecting anything in return. And in Titus, it says that we should learn and be eager to do good works and meet cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And I just think as a disciple of Jesus, one of the most important skills is just learning how to bless people in our sphere of influence, because that's what Jesus did. He went around doing good. So we've got a great chance to do that May 4th. You can go and talk to Chelsea in the foyer between services and uh, sign up. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, As we continue our series in Luke today, you know, as I was thinking about today's passage, uh, another passage came to mind, and that's Hebrews 5. The writer of Hebrews gives this warning to Christians, and he fears that they have become dull of hearing. I like that phrase, dull of hearing. What it means is this, that you can hear God's word, but it just sort of bounces off. You hear it, but it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't convict you. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't reshape you. And that's a danger for people who have walked with Jesus. It's a danger for all of us that you can hear things and they just kind of start becoming dull. And one reason we become dull of hearing is because Scripture gets very familiar to us. You ever experienced this where if you've heard something enough times, it's become so familiar that when you hear it again, you think, oh, I know what this is about, and you kind of turn off. Has that ever happened to you? That's, that's the danger today. Because today we start Luke 2, and we look at the original Christmas story. And even if you don't read the Bible, even if you don't come to church or you don't yet believe in Jesus, you know this story. It's a very familiar story. It's a classic. We sing songs about it. We've even created a whole cast of characters that aren't even in the story. You got 83 different animals and you've got the mean old innkeeper. You've got a drummer boy. I don't know how the drummer made it in, but there's a drummer as well. Uh, And it's great because when you have that many characters, it ensures that every kid gets a part in the Christmas pageant and no parents are mad. So I I get it. It makes sense. It's a very familiar story. And the temptation today is as you hear this, think, oh, yeah, I've heard this before and not let the text hit you in a fresh way. We get so familiar that we can become numb. And so with that in mind, I'd like to pray. Would Would you pray with me? And so, Father, by your spirit, would you grant us fresh eyes to to see this and open ears to hear what you have to teach us and receptive hearts to embrace and believe what you have for us this morning. Jesus, we're here to hear from you. You are our teacher. And so, Spirit, would you give me something profitable to say? 
that we might become more like you, Jesus, our lowly king. We praise you. We ask for your help now in your name. Amen. So let's do a little thought experiment here. Imagine that I started this talk and I said, family, uh, this might be the hardest talk I ever have to give. What would you think? You'd think, oh no, what happened at Creekside, right? What if I started this talk by saying, family, this might be the most controversial sermon I ever preach. You'd think, oh, why did I bring my friend, right? It's like today of all days. Jeff, why didn't you tell me? First impressions matter, don't they? How I introduce this will shape what you expect. How we introduce ourselves to others shapes what we expect from them. First impressions matter. We determine a lot about someone the instant we meet them. He seems trustworthy. She's charismatic. Wow, she's leadership material. Whoa, he's dominant. She's dateable. He's undateable. He's a friend. She's my enemy. According to one study, we make all of those judgments about someone and more. Do you know how long it takes? 12 seconds. 12 seconds. We start making judgments that shape our perception of what people are like. And it's significant because, right, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And so today we're looking at Jesus' birth. And, and here's the question to consider this morning. God is coming in skin to make his entry into the world. And for centuries, God's people have been waiting for this moment for the Messiah to make his arrival, the Lord, the Redeemer. And so now Christ finally makes his introduction. What first impression does he want to make? And how does that impression shape what his ministry is going to be about? That's the question we're going to mull over today. Why does Jesus make the first impression that he does? Because I think that was the question that Mary was mulling over after she gave birth to Jesus. So today, let's begin at the end of the passage. Let's fast forward. After Mary gives birth to Jesus, after the angels appear to the shepherds and tell them where to find the baby, and after the shepherds come, and after the shepherds say what has happened, Luke says this. And all who heard it, that's the report from the shepherds, uh, wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, notice the contrast between the masses and Mary. The shepherds tell of what they've heard and seen, and all these villagers go, wow, that's amazement. But in Luke, amazement is not faith. It's just, wow, that's amazing stuff. Doesn't mean that all of these people grasp the significance of who Jesus is or, or why he's come. They're, they're just astonished. But Mary has a very different reaction. She isn't exuberant. She isn't amazed at what happened. Luke says that she responds very privately. She treasures this moment in her heart. Now, when you hear that, what picture comes to mind? Here's the picture that comes to my mind because I've watched a lot of Christmas pageants. It's Hallmark, right? You've got Mary holding sweet baby Jesus, and baby Jesus is not crying. 
because as every carol makes very clear, he is not crying. He is just sweet, placid baby, and it's this tender scene, and Mary's heart is just full. She's just savoring the preciousness of that, of this moment, and, 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 and that's not what Luke is saying at all. That's not the picture he's trying to paint. Mary isn't sentimental. She's guarded. She's keeping her thoughts to herself. And you know why she is? Because she is confused. All of this has happened and she's going, huh? Because think about Mary's perspective here. She talked to Gabriel. She talked to the angel. The angel told her who this baby's gonna be. She knows who her son is. It's the king. And not just any king, it's the king of all kings. And now the king has been born where? In a feeding trough. And then Mary's visited by a bunch of shepherds. Like, moms, did you like when people came into the delivery room? Like, strangers, did you enjoy that experience? No. Why? And so all of a sudden, you give birth in this feeding trough, and then these, like, grisly security guards at night for sheep show up. And they're like, hey, we heard about a baby. We want to see the always Let's hold the baby. Like, no, like, don't touch my baby. Who are you, right? And like, why did you show up? And then this is the way that the Messiah enters the world. And what's the question Mary is going to ask? What kind of arrival is this? And that's exactly the question that Luke wants us as readers to grapple with. What kind of arrival is this? What kind of first impression is Jesus making? And what is this going to tell us about the nature of his ministry? That's what we're going to reflect on today. Two things this morning. First, what does this story tell us? about the kind of king Jesus is, his kingship. And then second, what does it tell us about the kind of kingdom he will establish? Because right here at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus, just in the way he comes, he is telling us what kind of king he will be and what his kingdom will look like, and it is diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this world. So first, kingship. Let's look at what kind of king Jesus is. And it is very clear in this passage, Luke is telling us this is the king. He's the king. And one way we know this is because Luke is continually comparing Jesus with the king of the day, Caesar, the king of the known world, and contrasting Jesus with him. So the passage begins this way, Luke 2, verse 1, we read this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Caesar Augustus is the guy, the emperor of the known world. Wherever civilization is, that's where he reigns. That's the, the thought in the popular imagination. And now he's taking a census of the whole world. Why do people take censuses? Sensei? What's the plural? I don't know. Why does an emperor take a census? Because he wants money. It's a flex. This is him saying, I want to count every head so I know how much tribute is coming to me. Apparently, this took place when Quirinius was governor. You know, it's interesting that word first could also be translated before. And so Luke could be saying that this census took place before Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And that translation actually makes a lot of sense because Quirinius was the governor of Syria, but it appears he was the uh, governor a little bit later on after this time, which would mean Herod is still governing the region. 
And again, you see that Luke is a very thoughtful historian. He wants to situate Jesus' birth in the context of world history. But this is more than just some random historical detail. Luke is doing something else. He wants us to see the cosmic significance of Jesus' birth. Why mention Caesar and the whole known world and all this? Because there's a king who's being born, who's the true king, and whose birth is the real news of the day. You know, sometimes the events that change history don't make the news. And in fact, often that's the case. It's a helpful exercise. You know, we think that whatever makes the headlines, that's what's really gonna shape the world, right? Often it's what doesn't make the headlines is the most world-shaping events. In fact, that's usually the case. Look back at any old headline. I did that this week. I looked back April 1st, 1976. If you open the San Francisco Chronicle, here was the big news, right? The big news was someone broke into Jimmy Carter's office. That was big news. They stole stamps. That's weird. You read the news, you'd think, wow, what is that? Is this a Watergate thing? What's going on? That's weird, right? You'd read that the, the transit workers in San Francisco were on strike and it created this huge mess for everyone. You think, man, that's a big news. It's gonna cause a problem. Does anyone remember that stuff? No. You know what else happened April 1st, 1976? You know what no one reported in the news? Today in Cupertino, a few guys started a company in a garage in Cupertino. It's called Apple Computer Company. No one, no one recorded that. No one reported that, but that's the epoch-making news of the day, and you know that because you can pick up your phone, <laughs> right? The events that, that shape the world are the ones that often go unnoticed. And, and Caesar's census, that would have been the headline. Luke is saying it's, it's fake news. That's not the real headline of the day. Why would Caesar's census be important? There's only one reason, Luke says. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he's of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, that's the key, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So this census is administered in Israelite, and each Israelite went to his hometown now, Israel was already organized in a certain way. You had 12 tribes. Each tribe had an allotment of land. So for this registration, each Israelite went back to their ancestral homeland to be registered. And it appears that that was an accommodation on the Romans' part. They just kind of let Israel operate the way they wanted to. And if Herod is still the governor, that makes sense. Herod's a Jew. He gets this concession. Hey, let us just organize ourselves the way our country does. The, the Romans go fine. And so to do the census, everyone goes back to their ancestral homeland. And Joseph, who is from the tribe of Judah, has to leave Nazareth where they live, which is in the north. And now they have to travel to be registered back where? To the south. To what city? To Bethlehem. And he takes Mary with him, presumably because Mary is very pregnant and you don't want to have the baby apart um, have her left there. And so Mary comes too, but Mary's pregnancy comes to term, which means Mary is not going to give birth in Nazareth, but where? But in Bethlehem. Why does that detail matter? That detail means everything. You know why? Because hundreds of years earlier, the Old Testament prophet Micah, prophet Micah makes a prediction and it's one of the most specific prophecies in the entire Old Testament. You remember what he says? 
He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. God says through Micah, from this little obscure city that no one's thinking about, but it's the city of David. Someone will come from David's line, and, and this one will not just be a ruler, the ruler will come from here. That's the point. And this is a point that Luke makes again and again. The details of history aren't random. All of these things that kings do to flex their power, those kings are just pawns in God's plan. They do things, but the reason that God will let Caesar have a census is to make sure that his plan is fulfilled and his Messiah is born exactly where God wants him born, and he will be the king that outlives Caesar and reigns forever. That's the point. Even the most powerful emperors only exist to do God's bidding. And now the king who is greater than Caesar will come. Caesar's reign came to an end about two decades after this. Jesus' reign lasts forever. Jesus is the king. That's Luke's point. Here's the question. What kind of king is Jesus? Is he a, a king like Caesar? Just raw imperial power forcing people to do his bidding? Well, you get a hint of what kind of king he's going to be in verse 7. Luke says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is one place where our English translations badly lead us astray, badly, and we miss the point because when you hear that word in, what do you think of? <laughs> yeah, a holiday inn, right? And so you get this vision, uh, and this is often how the Christmas story is portrayed. It's like, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're like trying to get to Bethlehem, but they're late. And she's about to give birth, and it's like, oh, we didn't plan for this. Like, you didn't plan for this, really? Like, oh, we can't get there in time, and so we just have to find a place to stay. Look, a roadside inn, you know? It's like the ancient Motel 6. Oh, we got to go in here. But then there's the, here's the villain in the story, right? The nasty innkeeper. And he's like, no, I won't let you in. And then we had the, the innkeeper's wife, too. Like, Please let him in. He's like, no, right? And he's like, like, oh, man, I hate that innkeeper. He's a real jerk in the story. There's no innkeeper in the story. There's no inn in the story. There's no motel. There were no motels. That word in, it's the Greek word kataluma. You know what a kataluma is? It's a guest room. It's an upper room. That's how the word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. You got to know something about ancient houses to know what they're talking about. For, for the average person in agrarian society, here's a house. You have a common room. And everything happens in the common room. You eat dinner in the common room, you work in the common room, you sleep in the common room. In fact, at night, you bring animals into the common room. And they'll feed there. And there's kind of a lower level to it and an upper level, and you keep the animals on the lower level. That's the common room. And then you've got a kataluma. It's a nice room. It's the guest room. This is where you'd accommodate guests. Now, think about the situation. Joseph's going back to his ancestral homeland. Guess who else is coming back? Relatives. Lots of people. And the city is teeming with people for the census. So presumably wherever Joseph's staying, other people are staying there too. And so Mary is staying in the common room, not the guest room. Why? People are already staying there. And you go, well, Jeff, you know, let the pregnant lady stay in the nice room, right? What's the deal? 
Why doesn't she get to stay there? Well, it's important to remember in a society like this, your status determined a lot. And presumably there's someone of higher status who's already in that room. So they're not gonna stay there. And so Mary gives birth in the common room where she's staying and has to put Jesus in this feeding trough for animals because there's nowhere else to lay him. And so what impression does that give? Luke clearly thinks this is significant. He's saying to us, don't miss this detail. In fact, we know that when we go on in the passage to verse 12. Because when the angels show up, remember that part? The angels show up to the shepherd and tell the shepherds where to go. Remember what the angels say to the shepherd? And this will be a what? Sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The baby is a sign. Now, in the Bible, what is a sign? A sign is a physical picture with a what? Deeper meaning. And so what Luke is telling us is there's a deeper meaning here. What is the deeper meaning? Well, there's a lot we could say. But the most important thing, I think, to say is this. That the king of the universe, when he makes his entry, he comes low. As low as we could imagine (laughs) can't even stay in the nicer room and gets placed in a feeding trough to make himself as accessible to us as he possibly could. Jesus is God made accessible by coming all the way down to the most humble, vulnerable, approachable place of all. A way of appreciating this is to compare the way Jesus shows up with the way God appears to Moses. There's a lot of similarities between this story, but you remember the way God appears to Moses? There's some similarities here. You got a shepherd out in the field, that's Moses, just like we got shepherds out in the field in Luke. But here Moses, the shepherd out in the field, the glory of the Lord appears to Moses, how? You remember? A burning bush, consuming fire, and he appears on Mount Sinai. That's where God appears. And then God tells Moses, This will be the what? Sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God where? On this mountain. God is saying, Moses, this is how I'm going to reveal myself to you. On this mountain here, I will reveal myself again, and this will be how I reveal myself as a fire. And you remember the story? Moses delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They go through the wilderness back to Mount Sinai where God had initially called Moses and then God appears again as a fire and it's overwhelming. The mountain is consumed with fire on the top and a voice thunders from heaven and God reveals his law to his people and does anyone want to get close to God? (laughs) They say, we're going to die. Moses, you go up there. Right? We don't like this God. They didn't like scary, inaccessible God. In fact, they made their own God, remember? We like like the calf. He's a good, accessible God. We don't like big, scary God on the mountain. Why? Because when God reveals his law and his standard, his holiness and his transcendence and his greatness and his purity and his glory are more than we can bear. He is inaccessible. We cannot get close to him. Now contrast that with God made flesh in Jesus. And when the glory of the Lord comes, can you think of a more humble, 
more approachable, more accessible way for God to come. When God reveals himself in the law, we're undone because we'll never get close to him. We'll never be good enough, righteous enough. When God reveals himself here in the gospel, he's coming all the way to us. And that's the implication that the king descends to the lowliest place, the lowliest place. Now remember, this is first impression. This shapes what we're gonna expect from Jesus' ministry. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Where is Jesus throughout his ministry? Among the lowly. Among the lowly. He's on the outskirts of society, on the margins. He's hanging out with people on the margins. He lives in obscurity for 30 years before God calls him to ministry. And then just three years of ministry in places that, that Caesar hadn't even heard of. Complete obscurity. And that's where God accomplishes the redemption of the world. You know, this is not how I would announce myself to the world because I'm not humble like Jesus. I'm telling you right now, if, I, if I'm showing up and I'm the king, First of all, like, we're, we're broadcasting this, okay? Very wide distribution, right? I'm getting a Super Bowl ad, right? Yeah, and it's not he gets us, it's I rule you, right? That's, uh, that's, that's how I'm showing up, okay? I, I rule, and I'm gonna be a little taller. I'm gonna be about 6'3". It's kind of my, my dream height, be about 6'3". My BMI is gonna be better, right? I have about 20 more pounds of muscle. I'm gonna be gleaming, right? And it's like, all right, I'm the king. Bow to me. And then I got angels, armies and armies. I'm taking over. Kiss the ring, right? That's what I'm saying. I'm taking over. And yet Jesus comes in a way diametrically opposed to any human king because ultimately the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. That's why Jesus comes. You know, this is sobering if you're a follower of Jesus because here's what it means. The way Jesus is going to work through you is not always and often won't look big, fast, famous, successful, or any of those things. It won't look like visible, tangible success in the world. It won't get noticed by the world's elite. And, and the hard, lowly, obscure places he has you working, that's where he works. That's where he worked. And, and I think one of the, the temptations as Christians is to say, we go through hard things and serve in lowly places as a stepping stone. <laughs> to some bigger, better ministry where we're more successful, more famous, more powerful, and boy, Jesus has got to sober you up because that is not what his ministry looked like. God has been teaching me this lesson, my wife this lesson, over and over and over for the past three years or so. Um, as you know, many of you know, we adopted a little guy named Omari, and uh, we adopted him back in, or started fostering him back in 2020, adopted him in 2021. And we knew going in that he had some special needs and some, some challenges. But we had no idea, no idea how many challenges he was gonna face. He's got a rare genetic disorder. Um, like 100 kids in the world have been diagnosed with it, that rare. And because of that genetic disorder, uh, he's gonna have difficulty learning and absorbing information. Things are just not firing in his brain. Uh, the way I think that, that God designed it to. And so he has a hard time learning and just the amount of physiological challenges. I mean, I'm so glad I'm married to a nurse because <laughs> that's why Omari's alive is, is because she's aware of all of these things. But, but let me tell you, you know, the lesson you learn on repeat, serving a kid like that, 
is you know how much power you have to change someone? <laughs> apart from God, apart from God's gracious intervention, <laughs> we can't do anything. And you know, no matter how much you say we're doing this to serve Jesus, how much to serve, we're doing this to serve Jesus, that's the reason. At some level in the back of your mind, you're thinking we're doing this to change the world. And thank God that kid has parents like us. And we're swooping in to save that kid with our resources and our network and our power and we're gonna change the trajectory of that kid's life and then you start serving and you're like, we can't do anything. God has to do it. And what you learn as you serve is this, that God puts us in places that feel obscure and hard where it feels like there isn't progress, right? Like, we working with him, just the, the littlest changes are like huge wins. Here's what you learn. God doesn't put you in those situations because you change the world. God puts you in those situations to change you. He wants to make you like Jesus, which means he's just gonna teach you to serve because ultimately what God was after in you is the fruit of the spirit. He wants to make you like Jesus and loving and patient and kind and humble. And if you go into life thinking the purpose of my ministry is to change the world, uh, to have some big, famous, count them up, successful impact on the world, you're in for a lot of disillusionment. And so whatever that thing is in your life where it feels hard and lowly, yet God is continuing to push you, serve that person contribute in that way. You know what? That's not a stepping stone to some bigger, greater thing in the future. That's actually the deal, is serving in that thing, because that's where God is doing his work in you to make you like Jesus. And who knows what God will accomplish through that? But it's God's work to accomplish. Does that make sense? It's following Jesus. We serve a lowly king. We serve a king who came in obscurity. It's often what our ministry is going to look like. That's the king. What does his kingdom look like? Well, that's the rest of Luke, but let me give you a preview really quick, okay? His kingdom is a kingdom for overlooked people, a kingdom that brings peace. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. I bet they were. <laughs> Angels aren't cute in the Bible. They're terrifying. They're warriors, okay? Army appears, everyone's terrified. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with a the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All of heaven rejoices at the birth of Jesus. And here's what you need to know about this. This is an imperial declaration. The armies of heaven are saying the king is here. Now, if you're a Roman, if you think like a Roman, you have to understand how this message would have landed on their ears. Because in the Roman world, do you know who the Savior was? Do you know who the Lord was? Caesar. In fact, when Augustus is born, when they pay tribute to him, it's, Hail Augustus, our Savior and Lord. That's what he was called. 
Lord Augustus, Savior Augustus, and his birth was good news. It was gospel. That's what they called it, good news of great joy. Do you know why Augustus' birth was such good news? Because he brought peace. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the, the known world was embroiled in tribal warfare and conflict, and then Rome comes, and Rome establishes what? Peace. At least the Romans called it peace. But how does Augustus establish peace? Power. That's it. Just power. I have the most military. I have the best system. I have the most money. I have the law. We're just going to put everyone under our thumb and create order. So there might be less internal turmoil, but you know what it is? It's just oppressive rule by a sword saying, rule, I rule, bow to me or else. And here's the thing about that kind of peace. Yeah, it's okay for everybody, but you know who that doesn't benefit? The people on the bottom. In fact, those are the people who get crushed under the weight of those kind of rulers because ultimately that peace benefits the people where? At the top. The people ruling, they get the most honor, they get the most money, they get the most status. And ultimately, if people have to die or be oppressed for this peace, well, it's just the cost of establishing peace. And yet when Jesus comes, they say it's peace on all the earth. And see, this is the thing about the shepherds. <laughs> Why do they hear it first? Because the shepherds, you know who they, rec they represent? The lowly. They're just like the despised day laborer people that everyone else would overlook. They're not the ones benefiting from the peace of the Roman Empire. <laughs> but they will benefit from Jesus, the true Lord of the world. And in fact, they get this honor of not only hearing about Jesus, but then telling everyone, heralding the news of the king's birth. Because Luke goes on to say, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so again, you see God, as Mary proclaimed, she, he's humbling those in high position and exalting those of lowly estate. They get the honor of telling the world the good news, the king is here. See, this is the way that human empires always work. Those on the top establish something like order and those on the bottom get crushed by it and it benefits who? The people at the top. And so Caesar establishes an order. What cost do people have to pay? Countless lives. Anything the king asks, it comes at all of their cost. Jesus establishes peace and it comes at whose cost? His. Jesus starts a kingdom where the one at the highest doesn't make everyone pay to benefit him. He starts a kingdom where the person at the top pays it all to benefit everyone else, starting with those on the bottom. It's diametrically opposed to the kingdoms in this world. What does that look like, Jeff? Guess what? That's the rest of Luke. <laughs> Seeing what it looks like for Jesus to establish, to bring about that kind of kingdom. But ultimately what it shows is that Jesus brings a better kind of peace. It's a peace that doesn't just force order. It's a peace that changes us from the inside. Because first, Jesus brings a peace that fixes what relationship? Our relationship with God. So we have peace with God, which is the peace we most need. And then it gives us peace with one another and transforms us into the kind of people who care about the lowly. High status people who aren't forced to help the lowly, but who will gladly be like Jesus and help those of lower estate. And it brings peace between these relationships and ultimately creates lasting order and harmony and only Jesus can bring us about because he's changing us from the inside out to bring that 
kind of peace. And that's the implication that the greatest king will establish deeper, truer, more lasting peace. But he does it in a way that no other king does. He does it with gentleness. What does Isaiah 42 say about the king, the despot, the one who will reign? A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus. All of heaven's armies bow to him in praise, and yet Jesus is the most gentle, tender king there ever was. He's the king who takes all the burden on himself to give us all the blessing. That's the king we follow. That's the kingdom he wants to establish. And that gets us to the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is we have a king who comes to us. You know, this is so different than I think often the way people in the Bay Area talk about coming to know God. Because we have, we swim in this culture where, it's, where, where coming to know God is like this pursuit and it's like a pursuit up toward God. And so we say things like, well, all religions basically teach the same thing and, and all paths lead to God. You ever hear that, right? All paths lead to God. And the picture often given is it's like a mountain, right? And we're all taking different paths up at the mountain, but we all end up in the same destination at the top with God. And you could take this route or you could take this route. Guess what? That's bad news. That's bad news. You know why that's bad news? Because apart from Jesus, the top the God at the top of the mountain will just make us come undone. The God is inaccessible to us. That God, uh, we cannot stand in his presence because of sin. See, coming to God isn't some kind of intellectual or spiritual achievement. We're never gonna get to God. In fact, the, the Bible story is there are no roads that lead to God from humanity to God. It's not that all paths lead there. None lead there. There's only one path and it's from God to us. Christianity is not go up the mountain to find God, it's that God came down the mountain to find you. How low did he go? Well, he came as a baby. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself. Even though he was in the form of God, even though he had the status of God, he didn't count that status something to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, Paul says, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He became a human, how humbling. That's his step one, because after he became a human, Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, the most humiliating death of all. See, Christianity isn't about finding God, it's about God finding you. That the lowliness of your sin, the desperation the feeling of I can never be good enough, I can never make it, I feel completely abandoned and forsaken, guess what? If that's where you feel, good news. That's how low Jesus goes to get you and lower. And, and that's the gospel. It's not saying I, I, I need to find God. It's saying, God, thank you for coming to find me, to die the death I deserve to die, to rise, to bring me all the way back to you. And it's just accepting that gift he's given you. All right, let's pray. So Lord, I pray that we would be sobered and encouraged by this passage and by your example, Jesus, that uh, you are the king with all power who comes low to get us. Thank you, God. Would we humble ourselves before you? And Lord, would we um, be those who associate with the lowly and trust that whatever hard, difficult, obscure, humbling thing you have us going through, Lord, that's actually the deal. That's actually the thing where you want to work on us and produce uh, the most lasting fruit. And so, Jesus, we praise you. We thank you this morning in your name.